Bingo. Now we're there. Thank you very much. I'm awfully sorry for the delay here. I'm very embarrassed, but I will try to get over it. Half the audience left over. As well as the title of this talk is really Depression and Senior Humanity Treatment. I use the same background that I used for the talk I've done in the past on depression. In my haste to get over here this morning while I was doing 40 other things, I pulled up the wrong one. Now we have the right one, so we'll start again. Um, this is an important topic because, although next month I'm talking about Alzheimer's, and that's my primary area of interest, uh, I do spend a fair amount of my time taking care of people with depression. And really, depression among the elderly is probably more common than Alzheimer's. And very, very important to treat. But how do you is the issue. And the sites double check that you're muted, please. We can hear. Conference, I believe, is 12 We can hear someone talking about a conference. Yeah. One so. of your sites is, uh, needs to be muted uh, before, unless you have questions. Okay, I think you did that. All right, so elderly patients can be difficult to diagnose because uh, what appears to be uh, going on with them may not be something they're willing to acknowledge at all. Older people in general tend to be quite reluctant to talk about depression. They may not even recognize it as being present. And because of the multiple comorbidities that older individuals have, they themselves, their families, and their doctors may assume that what's going on is really due to their physical problems or maybe their cognitive problems or simply the aging process. And a little later what we're going to get into is how we differentiate depression per se, which I like to think of as a treatable illness, an illness that needs to be treated in one way or another, from grief and loss and sadness that occurs as a normal phenomenon or as a normal phenomenon in the lives of, of all of us, and particularly all of us who are aging. And so we're, that's going to really be the focus here. Our diagnostic categories, which I'll talk about in a little while, at least the main ones, DSM-4 and DSM-5, don't really take adequate, I don't think are really excellent in describing what the, the problems that go on with seniors uh, in particularly. There's so many comorbid conditions that, as I said earlier, it's a little hard to tell what's due to what. And there are many depressive states that we see in older people that are certainly causing them distress and may warrant treatment that don't really meet the full criteria for so-called major depression. And as I mentioned before, the key theme is how to differentiate bereavement in the elderly from depression. Now here are some of the criteria looking at DSM-4 and DSM-5, and this is one area, the new DSM, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and this is the, uh, everybody refers to it as the Bible, the people who write it don't like to call it that, but they refer to it as that Diagnostic Bible for Psychiatric Diagnosis, and the new edition, DSM-5, now written in, as a regular number instead of a, a Roman numeral, is uh, quite, a, it came out in the spring, it's quite controversial, and uh, there are many areas of change, and there's some very important areas of change in relation to depression, which I'll get into, but otherwise the criteria for major depression have not changed particularly. And I'll focus on this for a bit, because I think it's a couple of important points to make. First of all, in order to qualify for a diagnosis of major depressive episode, which is that form of depression which is probably the most severe, uh, the most uh, uh, disabling. It requires that symptoms be present for at least two weeks. So it's not something that, you know, you have one bad day and you should get treated. Obviously, it's something that has to be more long-lasting than that. And that one of the symptoms, and there's a list of nine symptoms that I'll show you, but one of them has to be one of these two listed here, either depressed mood, that sounds obvious, or 
markedly diminished interest or pleasure in things, or what we call in psychiatry anhedonia. And notice that it doesn't have to be both. Frequently both are present, but it doesn't have to be. Someone can have can meet criteria for a diagnosis of major depression without actually demonstrating or acknowledging depressed mood. <coughs> we refer to this as depression without sadness. And it can occur in younger people, but it's much more common in the elderly. And it can be a little bit uh, sneaky because the patient may have a whole list of very disabling symptoms, but doesn't acknowledge depression, doesn't feel depressed, maybe doesn't even know what that word means. So subjective depressed mood does not have to be present in order to make a diagnosis of depression. And as I said, it's frequently absent in elderly people. <clears throat> but this second symptom, anhedonia, loss of pleasure, <clears throat> does have to be present if one, one of those two has to be present. And that one among the elderly is, I think, the most useful differentiating symptom in determining who has depression. There's so many other things that go on with older people, physical illness, cognitive symptoms, simple factors of the aging process itself, and grief, and I'll talk about this a little bit in a few minutes, that the one thing that really holds up as present if it's there and not present, present if it's major depression and not if it's not, is the loss of ability to experience pleasure. People can be going through enormously difficult times. People can be literally on the de their deathbed having enormous physical symptoms, unless they're in acute pain. I'm not talking about that. But people who are in extreme in extremely dire straits, but if they are not depressed, and you have to wonder why they aren't, but if they aren't depressed, they still retain the ability to experience pleasure, which I think of as an instinctive drive, human drive that we all have, and without which life doesn't have much meaning. Um, now, what, you know, somebody's in the hospital and bedridden and cancerous and dying, uh, you know, shortly of, of cancer, what they enjoy may be quite different from what they enjoyed when they were a lot younger and fully healthy and running, painting it down red and so forth. It may be the simple pleasure of having family visit. It may be uh, something is uh, you know very basic, but the ability to enjoy something is still there, and when that's present and normally and, and normal given the context of the person's situation, that really does rule against major depression, and that's important to consider because this is uh, you know, th these are often people who who may seem very unhappy and saddened, you know, and they're, they know they're dying and they're thinking of leaving their family and their families crying and they're crying, but they may not be depressed. And the way to look at it is whether or not this symptom of anhedonia is present. Here are the other symptoms for the DSM-4, DSM-5 criteria <laughs> for major depression. As I said, there are nine of them. You have to have five out of nine for two weeks in order to meet criteria for major depression. So one of them has to be one of the ones I showed you on the other page, and then you have to have four more out of this list. And, and not every, but most people don't have all of them, but, but many people have more than five. And what if you have four? Does that mean, that means the committee doesn't think you should get treated. But that, I think one has to use judgment. And any time you use a diagnostic scheme like this where we're forced to, because we don't have biological tests that say, yes, this is the illness or no, it isn't. We use these somewhat arbitrary um, consensus-based criteria that not everybody is going to fit into. So use, you obviously use judgment. It's a problem because um, if somebody, for a research trial, for example, some, you're going to do a trial of an antidepressant drug for major depression. They're all approved for major depression and nothing else. You have to have five symptoms. You don't have five. You have four, and you're really depressed. Too bad. You can't be in the trial. <laughs> now, the thing that really changed in DSM-5, and it got a lot of people's hackles up, uh, understandably and, and reasonably, I think, is that the decision was made for, in DSM-5 
to remove the so-called bereavement exclusion. What does this mean? In DSM-4, and I believe the previous DSM, so frankly I haven't looked back, I'm old enough, so I, went, I started with DSM-2, but I don't remember what those were, but DSM-4's been around a long time. At least with DSM-4, if you had all the symptoms of major depression or sufficient symptoms of major depression, but you had been bereaved within the last two months, you could, that would be, that's a so-called bereavement exclusion and you would not be diagnosed with depression. You would be diagnosed as having bereavement. And that was because clearly severe bereavement can cause extreme distress and they wanted to differentiate those people who are going through that from people who are going through a major depression where maybe nothing bad has happened, it's just a biological event that's occurred or they may have stressors too. But with DSM-5, in the committee's wisdom, they decided to remove this bereavement exclusion. <coughs> And what was the reason for this? Uh, the rationale was that if, if somebody meets criteria for major depression according to the DSM criteria, they ought to be diagnosed with major depression. Whether they've been recently bereaved or suffered some other major stressor. And the arguments of the authors of the DSM-5 who worked on this depression section, is that bereavement, while certainly a very severe stressor, is not the only stressor that can happen to people that can cause severe distress. And why should bereavement be excluded when all the other uh, stressors are not? And that was the argument that was made, that there is no real scientific justification to consider bereavement as a stressor in a separate category from any other kind of stressor. The argument against that has been very strong that well, bereavement really is something that is a part of normal life experience, a very painful part of life experience, and, it, and to, to remove this bereavement exclusion that runs the risk of pathologizing or medicalizing grief. It runs the risk of inappropriately treating normal sadness with medications and uh, uh, subjecting the person to the potential adverse effects of medication. And I happen to think even more serious than that is, because I see it in the hospital, that the minute somebody's sad, they get a pill and they get shipped out. They get sent off. Rather than saying, and it's, you know, you can fault the doctors, but it's, it's the system. It doesn't allow the time. To sit down and say, Let's, tell me what's upsetting. Why are you so upset about it? or, you know, let's talk about this. The good old-fashioned conversation that is really what's needed and the, the mistaken assumption is if we've dealt with this with a pill, we're done. And I think that that's the real, that's one of the real risks of pathologizing sadness or, or bereavement. Um, and there's a lot of con uh, concern that the, this decision was really influenced unduly by the pharmaceutical industry, who loves to have people with diagnoses so they can come up with treatments and, and make money on them. The latest one is low T in men, right. low testosterone. And you cannot watch the 6 o'clock news without mm -hmm. seeing an ad for low T and, and wonder whether, geez, maybe I could be like that guy if I only put this stuff under my arms or whatever it is. It's not an illness. It doesn't exist except in a drug company's mind, but they're going to sell a lot of that stuff. And there's, there's that argument. And I think, I, think all, I think that's a rational concern, realistic, a reasonable concern that those things can happen. Now, I also think that to, to defend, I have no interest rate in particularly defending DSO, I don't love it, but I think the argument can be made that their, their arguments are rational. And the fact that people will misuse what they've decided can't be blamed on the people who wrote the DSM. So what's really needed is good judgment and not just blind following of, of diagnostic categories. That was true with DSM 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Um, 
And certainly there's nothing in the DSM that says if you happen to meet our criteria for major depression, then you're obligated not to talk to the person and just give them high doses of antidepressants. That's not, it doesn't say that. It just says, here's the label that will apply and use good clinical judgment. So I, you can't argue with that. On the other hand, I, I see and support a lot of the arguments that are being made for uh, against the, the uh, elimination of this uh, bereavement exclusion. And there are other things in DSM, and I'm not, not in the areas in which I work, particularly, so I'm less familiar with them. But there are other areas of DSM that overall have led people to think that a lot of stuff that's normal is getting pathologized. And that there may be some justification for that because, not, not justification, there may be some truth to that. Because if I see somebody who <coughs> is unlucky enough not to have a psychiatric label, their insurance won't cover the visit and they're gonna get billed. The, the irony is, and this gets into the area of, uh, that I'll be talking about next month, which is the dementia. If I see somebody who's very worried about having Alzheimer's, and I find that they really don't have Alzheimer's, they have mild cognitive impairment, you know, I have to say, good news, you have mild cognitive impairment, you don't have Alzheimer's. Bad news is, you're gonna get a bill for this. Because DS, the insurance companies don't consider that a billable diagnosis. Now that may be, that may be changing, I don't know, but it's, there are a lot of things like that. And, whether or not there's some movement among the people by powers that be that write DSM to come up with as many labels as possible so the stuff that we see can actually get covered, I don't know, but, but that certainly is there. I'm not going to address motivation because I don't know I wasn't on the committees that did this. And there's a, a lot of work that went into this DSM-5. Um, so what I really want to do, and this does get back to the title that is supposed to be attached to this, which is, was the first slide of the real talk here, is when and how to treat, and, and, and if to treat. And a lot of that hinges on this whole question, it seems to me, of whether the sadness that we see and the misery that we see in people is something that ought to get treated, quote unquote, or is something that needs to be understood, to talked about, supported, and uh, and so forth. So not all sadness or grief should be seen as illness. Clearly it's not. Not all patients who are sad or grieving should be medicated. But I don't want to suggest that it's always so easy to differentiate these. And I would also say that, uh, as is clear from what I said before, Grief, severe grief, is a very frequent pre uh, precipitant to an episode of major depression. So somebody, somebody who's had a serious loss, a lo you know, seriously is seriously grieved, has lost a loved one. They are certainly at risk to developing major depression, particularly if they've had depressive episodes in the past. So where you draw the line is a, is a matter of clinical judgment and not an easy one. And, and perhaps there's better arguments to be made for treating somebody who maybe doesn't need the treatment than missing treating somebody who really should be treated. But the, the best thing is obviously make an accurate diagnosis when possible. In gr I'll just talk about a few differences between grief and bereavement or sadness on the one hand and depression on the other. And doing this makes it sound like it's easy to tell them apart. And I don't want to imply that, but I, I'm going to describe the things that I think stand out there to be thinking about that may help you in your clinical judgment that you have to make about this. First of all, in grief, there's or bereavement or sadness, obviously there's always a stressor or a loss of some kind, or maybe multiple ones. It doesn't have to be the death of a loved one, but there are many types of losses that older people experience. This is where I think they're right about the bereavement exclusion. Maybe it's that somebody has moved into a residential care community or a nursing home from home, and they're giving up the loss of all kinds of things, but it doesn't happen to be a death that's occurred. But there are many things we can think about that are, that are losses that occur to older people aside from deaths, although that's one of the common ones. Generally, and I don't know how accurate this is, but I think it is, that 
the severity of the grief reaction is proportionate to the severity of the loss. So if, if you had a good neighbor, a close neighbor, who uh, you know you were very who were friendly with, but it wasn't like you know your bosom buddy, and they move away, you might be sad for a while. But if you go become severely incapacitated by their moving, that may not be a proportionate reaction to the loss. And I, I made that one up, and one can think of other things. Um, in grief and bereavement, and very initially, right after a loss, there may be vegetative symptoms present. Those are the somatic symptoms, appetite disturbance, sleep disturbance, loss of energy, those sorts of things that occur in major depression. They may be <coughs> present early on, but they don't tend to be present for a long time in bereavement. They usually get better on their own. They don't need treatment, and probably better not to treat them in bereavement. One of the things that's interesting to think about is that in grief, again, with the exception of immediately, let's say someone's spouse dies suddenly, and it's not uncommon for the surviving spouse to go through a brief phase of self-blame. Oh, you know, he complained of having, uh, you know, an upset stomach. I should have known that that was the heart attack coming, and I should have got him to the hospital. You know, that sort of thing. That's, a, that's kind of a normal thing that happens immediately following a grief. It doesn't last. That tends to be self-limited because reality orientation takes over and people realize you know, that they're very sad that they, their loved one died, but it wasn't their fault. Um, so self-blame tends to be minimal, maybe occurring early on and, or non-existent in, in bereavement. And the ability to experience pleasure remains. And, and this is the key thing in bereavement. Not all the time. There are moments where people will be crying, but there are times where people who are in bereavement, and again, I'm not talking about the first days after the loss, but there are, will be times where the individual is still able to experience pleasure. And we've all been to to funerals where, or to, to wakes, or to uh, memorials where the, the, the spouse, the, the widow is you know, terribly upset, but also at times obviously very much able to enjoy the support and the company and people are telling funny stories and that sort of thing. And, and when you see that, you, rare, you don't see that sort of mixed response in somebody who's got major depression. But it does occur in in bereavement. Sadness is there, it's there forever in people who've lost a spouse. So people say, when is this going to be over? It's never going to be over. It's a matter of degree, but there, it will be intermingled with periods of feeling okay. The ability to be comforted or relieved, when one is in grief, what one needs to do in the passage of time, certainly, but one needs to reach out to others. One needs others to reach out to them, and that's a very beneficial healing process, whether it's family or close friends or whoever. It's, it's very, it's, I think that's therapeutic in that sense, and that people feel better who are in bereavement when they've been consoled or supported by loved ones. And again, in major depression, that tends not to happen. People are not as responsive to the support of other of family and friends. And, and one of the things that, that people complain about when their spouse is depressed, severely depressed, let's say, is no matter what I do, it doesn't make a difference. I try so hard to be loving and kind and, and, and you know, get a mission, and it just doesn't work. It's like they're invulnerable. They're, they're, invulnerable to that and you know, not, not responsive to that sort of support. Whereas people who are in grief, I'm not saying they'll be laughing five minutes after their loved one died. <coughs> they are, you have to wonder what the relationship is. But, but the ability to console someone is, is, much, is there, a very, very important part of, of managing uh, bereavement, I believe. Grief tends to be self-limited, though it can be very long, and that 
um, gradually it gets better. That's the normal reaction, but it can take years. Usually doesn't take years to be back to functioning, but it can be a very long time depending on the loss. Therapy, counseling, talk can be very beneficial to people in grief. Is it absolutely necessary? Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. <coughs> but it certainly can be beneficial. It's not that it does no good, just as I said, the support of family and friends can be therapeutic. So can counseling and, and uh, psychotherapy uh, in a situation or attending a, gr a support group for grief, uh, for people grieving. But Antidepressants, when it's not major, when it's not major depression, they're probably not very helpful. And I'm going to show you some things that will make that will be will contribute to why I think we're confused about that. But um, but I believe that that's true. Again, what's the? Have we done something terrible if we're really not sure and we medicate them? Maybe not, but I think it's better to be accurate about it. This is an example. This is actually, I took this right out of another talk I gave, but I think it's very relevant. This has to do with people with Alzheimer's, caregivers of uh, patients with Alzheimer's, a large percentage of whom get depressed, quote unquote depressed. And um, this was a study that was published earlier this year in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry by Mossback and others that uh, showed that they looked at the psychosocial outcomes of uh, caregivers versus non-caregivers, Alzheimer's caregivers versus non-caregivers. They found that 40% of the caregivers reported symptoms of quote-unquote depression, very high percentage. Now, most of these caregivers, of course, are elderly, and depression in the elderly is not a rare thing, but it's not 40%, that's for sure. I should know what the percentage is. I'm afraid I don't. 25% reported they were taking medication. But of those taking medication, this is what I found so interesting. This wasn't the major point of the article, but it, to me it's a major point of this. 69% of those taking antidepressants continue to experience significant depression. Now, what does that mean? Antidepressants do not work 100% of the time. Clearly, very often the first antidepressant is not effective. This was finding in the STAR-D Star study and other studies have found this. But generally, when somebody has a treatable illness, an, an antidepressant treatable illness, eventually a high percentage of people tend to respond, a good percentage of people respond. 69% of people with major depression are not still experiencing significant depression, sim depressive symptoms. Maybe a week after they start the meds they are, but this is you know ongoing. What this means to me is, and I'm interpreting, I may be wrong, but I don't think I am, that <coughs> A significant number of a significant number of those 25% who were getting antidepressant medications were people who were really in bereavement, were really in grief over their losing their loved one, were very stressed by the experience, were very saddened by it, but they didn't have a they didn't have an illness that was going to be treatable with a medication, and that's why the medicine didn't work. I think that's I think that's the explanation here. Is it you know? But there, I'm sure there could be other explanations. That, one could come up with, but I think that's the most logical one. That not everybody who's given an antidepressant it has an illness for which antidepressants are indicated. And maybe doesn't even have an illness. Maybe these caregivers are. Uh, even though a high percentage get depressed, uh, not all of those so-called depressions are ones that are going to respond to antidepressant medications. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So that's about grief. Now let's talk on the other hand about depression, and it's really just contrasting what I've just said. Um, there may or may not be an obvious loss, and we all, those of us who treat psychiatric illness, know that in individuals who have a history of major depression or have recurrent major depressive disorder, as it's called, may develop, may well develop episodes of severe major depression when there's no major stresses going on at all. It's interesting to think about because if you if you ask anybody who goes to a psychiatrist what's been stressful recently, or if you ask anybody who isn't going to a psychiatrist what's been stressful recently, everybody can come up with something. Stress is part of all of our lives. But the fact is that the 
that even if you look carefully at people who are having major depression, some of them have no stresses you can identify at all. They're doing fine, life is going well, and it's some biological short circuit that's happening. Of course, there are others where stress does bring it about. For sure, that's the case. And that stress could be a, a loss. The degree of response may not be proportionate to the nature of the uh, off loss, of the loss, I should say, not off loss, sorry. Um, <clears throat> and I mentioned the you know, person who's had a you know, friend, was friendly with their neighbor, and the neighbor moved away, but you know, they weren't you know, close, 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 and they became severely depressed, so they identified that as their major, as their stressor. That, that may not be a stressor sufficient to explain a severe depression. And that may mean that something else is going on that's more more leading a life of its own, if you will. Oh, there may or may not be a history of previous depressions, but when there is, be very careful about that because people who have recurring depressions are vulnerable. And stresses that might not put somebody else into a depression may well put that person into a depression. Or if they're bipolar, <coughs> for that matter, which is, you know, they have both highs and lows. So people who have that history, and by the time they're elderly, they've, you know, they either got that history or they don't, uh, that's useful to know. Does it make the diagnosis? No, but it's a very important piece of historical information to have. In depression, support from family and friends may be of limited benefit in improving mood. You know, and everybody will respond. Somebody comes up to you and is very nice to you. Everybody smiles and gets, feels better with that briefly. But it doesn't. It hasn't. It isn't sticking. It doesn't last. It kind of runs out. Um, Self-criticism in depression is much more common, or possibly blaming others. Somebody's at fault. In grief, usually people don't look to blame either themselves or others, usually. Um, but in, in depression, that may happen. That may happen. And it's very often self-blame, but it might be, might be blaming others. And some people, especially older people, express their depression by getting very irritable and critical of others particularly their spouse. Um, so, so that may be present. And this last bullet point here, generally the depressed person feels bad about himself. The person in grief feels bad about the situation. Is that always true? No, but it's a useful differentiation to make. It's a useful differentiation to make. Maybe the person who's depressed says, well, I'm fine, it's just my wife who's causing all this problem. You know, so they're blaming somebody else, whereas the person in grief says, "It's terrible. You know, I had cancer. He died. I, I loved him, and, and you know, it's terrible." But there isn't a sense of blame. Usually, all of these things are usually. Nothing's 100 percent. Again, I think one of the most useful things in diagnosing depression is whether or not the person is anhedonic. Do they? have the ability to experience pleasure or has that been lost? And you know, you have to be careful when I ask about that. Do you enjoy things? Oh yeah. Well, what do you enjoy? And you've got to pin it down because I, I really remember for a long time, a long time ago, asking somebody in the hospital, what do you like to do? I like to go fishing. When was the last time you went fishing? About five years ago. <laughs> so you really need to really know what's currently in their life that's bringing them pleasure. Not not because everybody can recall times when they were, most everybody can recall times when things were good. But what's going on currently? That's important to know. Vegetative and other symptoms are usually present in major depression, one or more of them. And they don't tend to get better on their own. They may worsen over time. Counseling and therapy may certainly be helpful in major depression. In fact, the data suggests that the best treatment for depression, now I'm not sure why this is so, I have a theory, but, but, the, but repeated studies have shown that the, the treatment that, to which people respond, the most the highest percentage of people respond, is a combination of therapy and pills. And 
I think that is that's the that's probably what people need these days. Unfortunately, given uh, health reform and depending on what happens with Obamacare after the government decides to reopen, uh, whether that will change <laughs> or not, I don't know. But um, you know, many people are only getting pills rather than getting counseling. And it's very, very hard to get people to get therapy and get, to get therapy paid for. So it's a real challenge, very hard. No, and it's a real challenge to get older people to go in the first place. So it's it's a double problem. But um, let's just say if somebody is depressed enough to require meds, it helps if somebody's talking to them and not just giving them pills and say, come back in three months and let me know how you're doing. Now. One of the things that we certainly see a lot of in elderly people is depression associated with cognitive impairment. And that can make it very difficult to tell because a lot of the symptoms of, <coughs> of uh, depression and the symptoms of cognitive uh, impairment may be similar. We also know that depression is an early sign of cognitive impairment. And it may be a harbinger that a dementia is developing. So keep that in mind. It isn't always, but it certainly can be. There's also been data that has shown recently, been shown recently, that multiple episodes of severe depression may be in, may increase one's risk of developing dementia. <coughs> Mechanisms for that are not totally clear, but there does seem to be an association there. Excuse me. <coughs> As I mentioned before, a lot of the symptoms of depression can be similar to the symptoms of dementia, apathy withdrawal. Families often have a difficult time telling whether somebody's depressed who has dementia or really just they're very apathetic because they just sit and don't do anything. Also, significantly cognitively impaired people aren't able to tell you that they're depressed. They, they may not have a language for that. And indirect, uh, indirect presentations of depression are also quite common among the elderly particularly with irritability or, or out and out aggressiveness. One of the things that, that we're looking at in our clinic, in, in uh, our memory clinic, is the whole issue of awareness. And how aware are people of their symptoms? People with dementia are not, often not very aware of their symptoms, and it adds a layer of problem. However, people who have good awareness of their cognitive decline are, are often more likely to be depressed and that perhaps having denial, having a, a lack of awareness may protect against depression. It tends to lead to other symptoms, disinhibition and uh, psychosis. But people who are, who are cognitively impaired but are aware of their cognitive impairment, which I'd say is less than 50% of people, uh, they have a higher incidence of anxiety and depression. That's been shown in some studies. It's an interesting uh, fact. If you look at a variety of studies of people with Alzheimer's, about 50% have some degree of depression, major or minor, which is less than the five symptoms of major depression, but you know, significant depression. This is a study I like to show. I'm going to move faster because we're running out of time. That if you look at people who live in the community, older people, what, what are the risk factors for having to go into an institution, for having to go into a nursing home? This is a study that was done in France, but I think it could equally have been done here. And here's what they found when they looked at, and I forget the number, but it was a large number of people. They found that, not surprisingly, being older, age, being female, how demented you are, whether or not you lived alone, all of those were significantly associated with the risk of being placed. Obviously, that makes sense. You're more demented, you're more likely to go into a nursing home. You're female, you're more likely to go into a nursing home because husbands aren't good at taking care of demented wives. They, uh, as good as demented, as wives are at taking care of demented husbands. Um, the older you are, the more likely you go into a nursing home. But look at this, major depression. 1.6 times higher rate of being institutionalized in people who have cognitive impairment than those who don't have major depression. And if you look at that list of symptoms, cognitive deterioration, ADL problems, gender, age, you can't change any of them except depression. And maybe that's an important consideration 
for people who are making decisions about how do we keep people out of nursing homes to save money? Not to mention because that's what they want. I don't, I'm not going to talk about this. I don't like depression screening tools, so I'm not going to talk about them. I don't, I think because so much is subjective, so much depends on what people want to tell you. A good clinical interview is far better than using a tool, although a lot of uh, clinics and, and settings require using a geriatric depression scale or this tool or that tool. They're only as good as the person wants them to be. I do want to emphasize that suicide is high in elderly. It's higher, highest in elderly males. 12% of the population is over 65. This is a little old. It's a little bit higher than that now. But they account for a disproportionate number of the completed suicides. Older patients make two to four attempts per completed suicide, whereas younger people make many attempts, many sort of suicidal gestures for each one, each one that uh, ends in death. Some of that's because their intent is to make a gesture. Some of that's because younger people can do incredible things to their body and survive it, <laughs> whereas older people don't have the ability to do that. But a lot of it is because when older people say they're going to kill themselves, you better take it very seriously. Here's the statistics. Look at this. This white bar that goes way up where my red arrow is is white males. It's curious that it's very different for black males, and I don't have an explanation for that. But here in the Upper Valley, who do we see? Um, remember, looking at starting at around age 65 there, the rate <coughs> is skyrocketing among older white men. Don't think older people don't do it. They do. Treatment of geriatric depression. This is, this is the managed care version. This is Lucy. Psychiatric help, five cents. I have deep feelings of depression. What can I do about this? Snap out of it, five cents. Oh, right. That's about what we get for managed care. care. Yeah. Psychotherapy may be useful for demented or early stage demented patients who have awareness and, of course, for people who don't have dementia. Let's say, just let me say just a few words about pharmacology before I stop and take questions. Here's one. Could we up the dosage? I still have feelings. <laughs> that is not necessarily the goal of pharmacologic treatment, is to wipe out all feelings, though it sometimes happens. Here's a list of the antidepressants that are used. And as you can see, the ones in white are generic now. And we really are lucky to have a good variety of antidepressants that are generic and relatively inexpensive, the older SSRIs in particular. Those in red are still patent protected and very expensive. and very hard to justify their use unless somebody has really failed on the others, because, simply because of the cost differences and because there's so many Me Too drugs in this category. A large percentage of patients initially don't respond to the first antidepressant and may need to try another. The dictum is start low and go slow with older people, but it's also important to go high enough. I've seen patients sent to me who've quote, failed to respond on just, you know, 10 milligrams of Selexor or something like that, where they have never gotten enough to really know whether it's going to work or not. Here's one final thing I wanted to say. What about treating, uh, but I think this applies beyond dementia. As somebody who treats a lot of dementia and treats a lot of people who are depressed and have dementia, I happen to think that treating them with antidepressants is often very helpful. The literature actually does not support that. Here's a, a good study that came out in The Lancet two years ago that showed, this is looked at using either placebo, sertraline, Zoloft, or mirtazapine, Remeron, and 100 or so patients in each group. And what they found here was, look at this graph. Everybody got well in three months. That's when they did the visit. Whether you got placebo, whether you got sertraline, whether you got mirtazapine, everybody got well. If you got side effects, it's more likely because you're on a drug, as you can see. But everybody got well. And it didn't really change much over six months. Is that, I forget what that number is. Is that 39? Is that yes. the end of that? Yeah, so that's more than six months. It's almost nine months. So what does this mean? Well, I think one the take home that I have from that is, well, these studies aren't accurate. But no, that's, <laughs> that's one take home. But the, the other take home is that if I prescribe a medication to somebody who's depressed, and I say, come back in three months, which I often do, 
Sometimes, sorry, Ned, I'd like to see sometimes a little more often than that, but it may be that. Look what happens in three months. They're better. And I can go home feeling terrific that I've, I've helped mm -hmm. some. I've helped yet another person get out of their depression today. Well, if I gave them that, and I've sometimes had the experience where I said, I'm so glad you're better since you've been taking that new pill I gave you. And they say, what new pill? <laughs> so the notion that depression, quote unquote, which may or may not be depression, can be self-limited, can be grief, can be something that responds either to the supportive intervention of a placebo, and I believe strongly that there's a placebo effect there that's very important. So we go to the doctor, being given a pill that they believe is going to help, and they trust the doctor, and the doctor says this is going to help, that's going to help. And it doesn't matter what it is. So I think that there's an enormous placebo effect here that completely corresponds to what we believe to be the drug effect. And who knows what's happening when we give these. I saw this study when it came out. I didn't stop prescribing antidepressants, but I must say I had a little more pause about it and more, a little more thoughtfulness about it. And I, and I still think that there are patients that are not captured in this who really, really need antidepressants to get well. But let me stop there because it's just a few minutes before one. I'm sorry we got late at the start because I couldn't find the right talk, but um, I've, I think I've covered what I wanted to cover pretty much. What questions or comments do people have either here in the room or in the uh, other side? Yeah. Jen. How does the shock therapy fit into something like this? And when? Shock, the question is, if people didn't hear it, what about shock therapy, electroconvulsive therapy? And the fact of the matter is electroconvulsive therapy is still a very widely used and very effective treatment for the right person. And the right person is somebody who has failed to respond to antidepressant medications, who clearly has a diagnosis of major depression. And there are, as you know, though I, I believe that people who have major depression tend to do pretty well with antidepressants. Pretty well is not 100% by any means. I can't tell you what the percentage is, but it's maybe no more than two thirds or a half. Um, and there are people who remain severely depressed where ECT will do wonders for them. It may also cause cognitive impairment, temporary at least, and because it has such a bad reputation, there are people who desperately need it who won't have it. You can't give it to somebody who doesn't want to do it unless you get a court order. Um, and there are new treatments that are being worked on, and Paul Hor uh, Holtimer at our place is one of the real national experts in this, in looking at using other types of uh, uh, somatic therapies um, using magnetic waves and other things that don't require the patient to go to sleep that have shown very good effect in, in depressions that don't respond. Right now they're cumbersome because they have to be given every day for like six weeks or something like that. But, but there are, you know, I think it's just, it means that they're going to be, do you think, the irony about ECT is it's the oldest treatment we've got. It's been around for a hundred or more years. And it was indiscriminately used and used without anesthesia and all of that. It was pretty brutal when it was first started. But it, when it's done properly now, it can be life-saving. There's no doubt about it. But I, my own belief is don't do it until everything else has failed. But, but don't rule it out either. Other, yeah. Um, I read an article that said if a family has a history of alcoholism, that there are some, there's a, a special antidepressant that works better for that kind of person than others. Have you run hmm. across that? I haven't point? heard that, but that doesn't mean, doesn't disqualify what you said. I just, that certainly may be out there. That would be interesting to know. I can send you the article. I'd be interested in seeing sure. it. Yeah, certainly uh, there's you know, people who come from families with, with problems of whatever kind have a higher incidence of having depression. Certainly alcoholism in a family member is one of them. Now, whether that represents some genetic problem in that parent, let's say, who's then passing it on to the child who may not drink but may become depressed, who knows at this point? Or whether it's simply growing up in that environment would get you depressed. It, it, it's hard to say, but it's very interesting. I'd be curious to see that. But it, yes. Yeah, when you use the term hyper insomniac, I mean, they, they never sleep? Um, Insomniac would be somebody who has trouble sleeping. Hypersomniac is somebody who sleeps too much. Too much. And uh, excessive sleep can be a symptom of depression, certainly. 
It's usually associated with so-called atypical depression. I don't think that word is in the DSM-5. And those are depressions that are a little harder to treat than the regular ones, but than the typical depressions. But uh, you know, some sort of sleep disturbance, either too much or too little, is typical. The classic sleep disturbance in major depression is someone who falls asleep like they're dead, you know, early in the evening or whatever time, but wakes up three o'clock in the morning and cannot get back to sleep and feels the worst of all of that they feel all day long in that very early morning hour and gets, feels better as the day goes on. That's early morning awakening. That's almost pathognomonic for major depression. Any other comments or questions? Anything I from the field here? Yes. Good. If somebody um, shows less than five symptoms of um, depression, what are some other diagnoses that you would consider? Minor depression is the <laughs> term that's been used. Uh, and I believe, I have to, to be honest, I can't swear to it, but I believe that is, uh, exists in some form in um, uh, the new DSM, DSM-5. Uh, I, I would not, if I felt, I believe that depression severity is the issue rather than symptom count. And if I thought that depression was severe and I could only count four symptoms, I'd still call it major depression. Um, and still want to treat it as such. But technically, you're not supposed to unless it's five, and then you might use the term minor depression. We often, you know, and it depends on what you're using the diagnosis for. If you're using it simply to satisfy an insurance billing company, billing code, depression not otherwise specified, or depression NOS, is a very common diagnosis we use. It doesn't mean much, except that there's some kind of depression going on. But it's, it's accepted by insurance. <coughs> where, where does dysthymia fit in? Dysthymia has been tossed out of the new DSM. It's gone. Oh, yeah. It has it's yeah. Dysthymia is chronic depression. And there, there may be a new word. I, I'm sorry that I don't have all the details in my head about that. Dysthymia used to be something that you had to have two years of symptoms for. It was thought to be relatively unresponsive to meds. There's now some arguments that maybe it does respond. And a lot of those patients get meds because you're going to do. Um, but I believe that they've thrown out that term and whether they, what, what would be the equivalent term, I, I'm sorry, I don't know, chronic depression of some kind or other. I think the concept is still valuable. Clearly there are people who have these long-standing characterologically, uh, uh, characterological depressions that are, are not easy to treat, let's say. Persistent people. depressive disorder. There you go. That's what is in DSM-5. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Persistent yeah. depressive oh, disorder. Persistent depressive yeah. disorder. you got to change some. It's the same. It's old yeah. wine in a new bottle. Huh. ATA. <laughs> What's that? PDD is another three-letter acronym. Oh, there's so many. <laughs> Any other questions? Hmm. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your attention. Again, I'm sorry I came up with the wrong <laughs> part at first, but... We seem to have corrected that. So.